lukewarm tonight, and we're, but we're glad you're uh, with us. Sorry to bring that up. And then all of you who are watching from home, as Pastor Gordon shared, we miss everyone, and we're doing what we can to stay in, uh, connected, and tonight we'll get to enjoy uh, the Lord's Supper. We haven't been able to do that in a while, and uh, so looking forward to what the Lord has planned for us. Let's turn this evening uh, to the book of Luke, uh, chapter 3. Gospel according to Luke, Sunday nights we do go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, this is where we find ourselves uh, not quite finishing chapter 3, and actually it works out pretty good for our purposes here uh, this evening. Jesus is going to begin um, formally begin His public ministry in chapter 4, verse 11. But two very, very important things occurred uh, in His life and in His ministry before He began His public ministry, and we'll be looking at those uh, this evening. And we pick things up in verse 21. And uh, Luke writes, when all of the people, that, and here we are jumping back into the context of John the Baptist out in the Judean wilderness, and he is baptizing people who are coming uh, to express their desire to repent of their sin, to draw close to God, knowing that the Messiah, as John has been preaching, is approaching. So uh, they were there being baptized uh, with John in the Jordan in that area, probably down by Jericho area. And when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And, uh, and while he prayed, the heaven was open and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. I want you to circle that upon in your mind uh, at least and uh, maybe even in your Bible. The Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him and a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son in you. And the idea is you and you alone. I am well uh, pleased. And now we're told, verse uh, 23, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. And so he begins at about that age. Uh, 30 years old was, a, was an age where uh, the, there was some, something about that age uh, among the Jewish people then. Uh, in the Old Testament, the uh, priests and the Levites, they would uh, begin their ministry at 30 years of age. They would minister uh, through to 50, so they kind of had a 20-year really strong go at it. Uh, but because the, the priests and the Levites began their ministry at 30, it came to be recognized by the Jewish people as that being the age in which spiritual authority would be trusted to you, uh, the beginning of, of this kind of, of ministry. And so Jesus uh, begins at that age. He's baptized, as we're told in verse 21, in the Jordan River. And uh, Jesus came to John to be baptized, came to him, uh, sought him out with all that he was doing there, and uh, sought John out specifically uh, to be baptized uh, uh, by him. Uh, he came to John for the very purpose of being uh, baptized. And you can imagine John, as this line is formed, and people are, uh, he's baptizing them one after the other, and then the next person steps up, and the next person steps up, and then suddenly stand be, standing before John is Jesus himself in, uh, in the line now to be uh, water baptized. And so uh, John, we're told in Ma uh, Matthew's gospel, is he immediately protested, as you might imagine, uh, and he, he said to Jesus, uh, um, uh, he, he said, I need to be baptized by you. And you, are you coming uh, to me? I mean, John is respectful to Jesus, uh, but it, it all seems wrong to him. He tries to uh, prevent uh, him doing the water baptism of, of Jesus. And uh, you're holier than me. You're more committed to God uh, than I am. You're more zealous to, than, <coughs> to God than I am. You should be baptizing 
uh, me, not me baptizing you. And Jesus answered him and said, Permit it to be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Excuse me. In other words, Jesus was communicating to John that this is precisely how he wanted to begin his public uh, ministry. And his public ministry that would end up, (coughs) excuse me again, His public ministry that would end up involving his death, his burial, uh, and his resurrection, all of that symbolized by water baptism, and uh, in order to provide mankind with a right standing before uh, God, that uh, righteousness that we so desperately need. Jesus had uh, come into the world in order to provide that to us. Now, the water baptism that the people were uh, being water baptized with and the baptism that John was doing, it expressed the people's uh, desire, their hunger for righteousness, their hunger for salvation. And Jesus' water baptism represented his commitment now to provide uh, the substance of that forgiveness, of that salvation, that righteousness, uh, whatever the cost to himself. And so, of course, John uh, obeyed. You notice in verse 21 and 22, the supernatural phenomenon associated with Jesus' baptism. Luke is the only one of the Gospels that tells us that while he was being, Jesus was being baptized, that he was uh, praying. And so there is this emphasis uh, in Luke's Gospel upon uh, the humanity of of Jesus, all of this consistent with uh, his, his uh, the, the and the reason why Jesus's prayer life is emphasized all the way through uh, the the book of Luke. You notice the testimony of the Holy Spirit uh, uh, concerning Jesus there in verse twenty-two. As Jesus came up out of the waters, the heavens opened up. We're told, and uh, uh, and then he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove upon him. And so Jesus now begins his three and a half year public ministry with what we know to be uh, from the New Testament uh, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. There was never a time in Jesus's life that he wasn't full of the Holy Spirit, so to speak. Uh, and, uh, and in the same way, when we become Christians, we are immediately indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Holy Spirit comes inside of us. You cannot be a Christian except for that spiritual birth occurring within uh, within our lives. And uh, but here is the baptism with the Holy Spirit uh, that is the power uh, for Christian service, the power to live for God in in that realm. And I asked you to notice that word uh, upon uh, a p in the uh, in the uh, Greek language, and uh, it speaks of the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus to provide him with the power to do all that lay ahead of him in his, his public ministry, including the intensity of those uh, the, uh, uh, events, the three greatest events in human history, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so the difference between the Holy Spirit uh, being in us as Christians and uh, which happens at our spiritual birth, and then here is this upon experience with the Holy, uh, Holy Spirit. It is important to uh, realize that Jesus did not operate in his public ministry out of his deity, uh, though he uh, was, is, and always will be divine. He never ceased to be that at all. But he operated in his public ministry out of his humanity. And uh, here he is navigating all of the fallenness of the world and, uh, and, the, and the temptations of the world, and he navigated them with the same resources that are available to us uh, as Christians. Uh, the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, the baptism 
with the Holy uh, Spirit. Everything that Jesus did and taught was from the will of God the Father. It was done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Concerning his works, Jesus declared, John chapter 5, verse 30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Of his teaching, John chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus said to them, uh, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And the place of the Holy Spirit in all of this is given to us uh, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sacrifices for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so Jesus lived His life in His incarnation and he overcame every obstacle that he faced in his public ministry, every temptation. He was tempted in all ways, even as uh, we are, the writer of the book of Hebrews says. Uh, but but uh, he, he uh, overcame all of them. He met all of them in the power of the Holy Spirit. And any Christian may meet those same temptations and difficulties with, with that same uh, power. The word upon as it's used in the passage is the same Greek preposition that Jesus used, uh, used later following his resurrection from the dead as he spoke to uh, the disciples in Acts chapter 1 and he spoke to them about the baptism uh, with the Holy Spirit that he promised was going to come upon the disciples and uh, in order to provide them with the power to be witnesses to Jesus, to serve Him in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus put it this way, but you shall, Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's the power to live for God. It's the power to serve God in any environment that we might find ourselves in uh, as a Christian. However dark, however difficult, however challenging uh, it, it, it might be, here is the power to be a witness to uh, Christ. And no one uh, can uh, hope to have the power to live the Christian life or to engage in fruitful Christian ministry apart from the baptism with the Holy Spirit. It's the reason uh, that it gives, uh, that, that God uh, 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 provides it to us. And not only can no one be successful apart from the baptism with the Holy Spirit, uh, but no one needs to attempt to, uh, the, the fruitless attempt of being so. Because the baptism with the Holy Spirit in, uh, is there for the asking uh, by any Christian. We'll see later in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus spoke and He said, If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You might remember that in uh, 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 somebody may very well ask the uh, excellent question, and I'm not going to get into every aspect of this. I'm just going to probably raise more questions than I answer, but I hope not. But we did a whole series on the Holy Spirit that's available on our website in our teaching through the life of Jesus in chronological order. But you might remember that in John chapter 20, on the, the evening of Jesus' resurrection, that he breathed upon the disciples in that upper room and he declared to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit couldn't be given that way until after his death, burial, and resurrection. And at that moment, they received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came into their lives. And yet, 40 days later, 
Uh, on the day of his ascension, he spoke to the disciples, what I read to you there in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He spoke to them about the baptism with the Holy Spirit, waiting in Jerusalem until they had received this uh, baptism of the Spirit before they began their public ministry. So here you have a gap of 40 days. Sometimes people will say, I thought we got everything, so to speak, related to the Holy Spirit at the moment that we were converted. Perhaps you did, uh, but uh, clearly not everyone does. It's possible to be born again and not yet have received this baptism with the Holy Spirit to receive this, uh, to receive this power. And so, uh, Jesus ascends up into heaven, and then 10 days after that, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon the assembled church in that upper room in Jerusalem, and they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. In other words, there's a block of time between the Holy Spirit coming in them and then the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And, and the point that I want to make related to that is that if you are a Christian and you know you're born again, but you lack the power to stand in the face of temptation, uh, you lack the power, the, the boldness, the, the dunamis, the dynamic of the Holy Spirit uh, to fulfill uh, the, the ministry that God has called you uh, to, um, if, if you've never asked for the baptism with the Holy Spirit, then just to ask Him for it. Say, Lord, I don't think I have this uh, dynamic in my life. I know I love you. I know I'm saved. I know I'm on my way to heaven. But my life is one of continual kind of uh, one step forward and two steps back. And I don't, I don't want that to happen. The reason I spent a little bit of time on this this morning, or this evening, see, Gordon, this is what he's done to me. It's a morning somewhere. But this evening, the, uh, is that when I first became a Christian, I didn't know anything about, really anything about the Holy Spirit, and I didn't know anything about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I thought Christianity was, you've got the commandments of God right here in the Bible, and uh, now the idea is you learn them, you roll up your sleeves, and now you obey them in your own strength. Well, uh, nobody can do that. So I ended up very defeated, very, very frustrated, and, uh, and uh, uh, no joy, just striving as, as hard as I could until I heard about the baptism uh, with the Holy Spirit, and I was, ended up being baptized in the Spirit as Jesus had promised, and I received that power, and everything uh, changed. There's nothing like the change that occurs when we're born again, but this was quite a, is quite a change when it occurs. I mean, all the blues are bluer, all the reds are redder. It is it, it, it's a very real experience of the Holy Spirit. As I said, many people will receive uh, uh, both the Holy Spirit coming in them, upon them at the time of, uh, of salvation. For other, as of, others of us, there can be this separation. And the difference between the life that I was living uh, before the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a Christian and then after is the difference between Romans chapter 7 and uh, Romans chapter 8, Christianity. Romans chapter 7, for I know uh, that it, uh, in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform uh, what is good I do not find. I want to live this life, but I, can't, I don't know how uh, to do it. That's the issue, the how. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And I find a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inner man. But I see there's another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity uh, to the law of sin which is in my uh, members. And then he reaches this crescendo, oh wretched man that I am, 
who, and the answer to that is the Holy Spirit, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then you go into the uh, Romans chapter 8, and it describes the Spirit-filled Christian life, and it begins like this. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. And I just wanted to ask, uh, have you uh, been baptized with the Holy Spirit? And if you never have, to just simply ask God for that experience that he promises uh, in your life, and he will do it for you. And, uh, and asking for, uh, even if we are baptized in the Spirit, asking for a greater dynamic of the Spirit in our lives, in our Christian life, and in, in, our, uh, in our ministries. I, uh, I, I, it was interesting. I used to have more time to read uh, Christian biography, but it fascinated me that uh, two gentlemen who, after they had, were elderly and had finished long, uh, successful ministry and pastorates. One of them was a gentleman by the name of R.A. Torrey, and then the other one is Martin Lloyd-Jones. And um, both of them, great teachers of the Word of God. Uh, if you want to get what I think is one of the top three or so books on the Holy Spirit, pick up R.A. Torrey's book, uh, The Person and the Work of the Holy Spirit. Chuck Smith's book on the Holy Spirit is another uh, great asset related to that. But here these men had ministered the Word all of their life, and they got to the end of it, and especially Lloyd-Jones, but both of them in, in almost a comparable measure, they were so frustrated that people knew so much. There was a different age in in, uh, in Christendom, in the history of England, but they were, people knew so much, but there was so little dynamic, so little power, so little life in people's lives uh, by the Holy Spirit that they spent the remaining years of their life uh, teaching on the person, the work of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit so people would have both the Word and the supernatural dynamic uh, of the baptism with the Holy Spirit marking their uh, lives. They saw how important it is uh, to uh, the, the, the Christian life. And I think there's a, a, a very strong uh, discernible difference between uh, the, a, a Christian who is born again nice on their way to heaven I'm not putting any of that down and then someone who's been filled with the Holy Spirit baptized with the Holy Spirit I mean one of the best examples I can say is I used to ride uh, a bike and we were uh, uh, at a particular ride a group of us and going to tackle a long ride that, that way an organized ride and everybody's all in their uniforms and things in different teams from all over California. And uh, I saw a group, about five or six guys, they were there with their bikes, and they had these jerseys on that were, they were Christian jerseys. Clearly they were Christians. And so I walked up to them and I said, uh, has, uh, has God been good to you? You know, I mean, usually you say that to a group of Christians, yeah, he's been great. And I um, I might as well have been talking to their bikes. I mean, there was no response at all to it, no life. I mean, I put my tail between my legs and I, I uh, walked away. But there, there's this missing, not merely the power, but the excitement, the joy, uh, the overflow uh, of, of the Christian life that comes from this. Uh, Jesus encapsulated it when he was... Uh, in John chapter 7, where on the last day, the great day of the feast, he stood up before the great Jewish congregation, uh, so many people there at that festival time in Jerusalem, and he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and, uh, uh, and drink. And he who believes in me, as the Spirit has said, out of his heart will flow 
torrents or rivers of living water, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him uh, would receive. And so that's the dynamic that God wants us to have in, in our uh, Christian lives. You notice here, too, the testimony in the operation activity of not only the Holy Spirit at the scene of Jesus' water baptism, but the testimony of God the Father to Jesus there at the end of verse 22. And uh, as he declares concerning him, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And so here you have the entirety of the Godhead present at Jesus' water baptism. You have uh, God the Father, you have uh, God the Son, and, uh, and God the Holy Spirit uh, present there. Uh, one God, three persons, all of them manifested at it, it, it one moment there at, at the water uh, baptism. And the reason that that's important to recognize is because there is a, a doctrine that's called uh, oneness uh, Pentecostalism or oneness doctrine that exists uh, today, and uh, their teaching is uh, is that God is only manifest in one of those three persons at any given time, that there isn't a trinity or a triunity related to God. And so in the Old Testament, God was revealing Himself, manifesting Himself as God the Father. In the Gospels, uh, that He was manifesting Himself as God the Son. And then following Jesus' ascension, He manifests Himself as uh, God the Holy Spirit. And so this is the way they've divided it in their mind. Uh, They have tremendous difficulty, more than difficulty, it's impossible trying to explain how all three persons are present uh, at the water baptism. And it's important for us uh, to, to recognize uh, the truth of that and the air of, of their uh, position. And so here the father, he publicly testified uh, to his son, you are my, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he wants the whole world to know three things about Jesus, that this is my son, I love my son and uh, uh, that I am well pleased uh, in him and uh, to, uh, uh, in, in communicating to everyone in the world at the time of Jesus, also everyone in the world today, that everything that you're about to read in the Gospel of Luke, everything you're about to see in the life of Jesus, in his doing, in his teaching, we are all on board with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He represents us uh, 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 fully in, in what he's about to do as he begins his, his, uh, his public ministry. Pay attention to him. He speaks for uh, all of us. And, uh, and in the Old Testament, of course, when, uh, when a fact was going to be established, uh, everything needed to be established on the basis of two or three witnesses. And here you have uh, the, the witness to Jesus, who he is, and the greatest witnesses you can have, and that is uh, the Father uh, and uh, the Holy Spirit. And so with this now, uh, Mark leaves the ministry of John the Baptist behind, and he, uh, Luke, rather, he, and now focuses solely uh, upon Jesus. And then at the latter part of verse 23, all the way through verse 38, we have a genealogy. And how, if, if you've ever, you, maybe you've even said it, but if you've ever talked with somebody and you say, you know, have you ever read the Bible? And uh, very often uh, someone will say, yeah, I tried to read it, and then I got to those genealogies, and then uh, I quit at that particular uh, point and, and uh, just uh, gave up and, because it was just uh, too boring. And, uh, and when anybody says something like that, we are revealing ourselves to be uh, Gentiles, <laughs> absolute Gentiles. You know, I read them and they were boring to me. Or, you know, I read, I read far enough in them until I realized I'm not going to see my name there. And then, then I gave up on it in the selfism of, of, of our culture. But the, why include this long genealogy? And, and Matthew does the same thing in his gospel. 
uh, right at the very beginning of, uh, of Jesus' public ministry, the very beginning of, uh, of the gospel. And uh, the reason that the Holy Spirit does it is to give evidence to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised anointed one, the promised Messiah uh, of the Old Testament Scriptures because you cannot prove Jesus as the promised Messiah, based upon the Old Testament Scriptures, without also giving his genealogy, that he is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, that he is a descendant also of the bloodline of King David. And there's differences between these two genealogies. Uh, Matthew's genealogy is, uh, is Joseph's genealogy. This genealogy is uh, Mary's genealogy. It is very, very technical to get into all of that, and it's not my purpose tonight. And, um, but sufficient to say both genealogies reveal Jesus to be uh, qualified on the basis of his bloodline uh, for his claim uh, to be uh, the, the promised uh, Messiah. Now, as we come into chapter 4, we're told in verse 1, then Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Luke doesn't drop that because uh, the success of Jesus and the temptation that he's about to face uh, hinges on two very important things, and one of them is, is that he is already filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't come into this temptation without this uh, dynamic of the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan where he was water baptized and then was led by the Spirit uh, in the wilderness. So he is filled first, then he's led by the Holy Spirit out into the uh, wilderness before the start of his public ministry and being uh, tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days, he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. So this is Luke's um, capacity for understatement. No eating of anything for 40 days. We would certainly be uh, more than hungry. And this was Jesus' uh, condition. This passage here is so uh, rich for us because it speaks to us, or this whole section speaks to us, the necessity of the the baptism with the Holy Spirit, but then it provides us with invaluable insight into uh, temptation. And every Christian is going to be tempted by uh, the, the devil. And so there's no, this is not theoretical kind of puff stuff. This is something we deal with as Christians every single day. And so what, what the purposes of Jesus' temptation at this particular point, it wasn't helter-skelter or random. Uh, again, the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness where this temptation was going to take place. There's a reason for it. And one of the reasons is so that Jesus could uh, withstand the temptations of uh, the devil in his humanity in a way that no human being had ever done, uh, going all the way back to Adam and Eve. And then in order for Jesus to be able to sympathize with us, as the writer of the book of Hebrews puts it, as our high priest. He knows the intensity of the temptations that we face uh, as Christians. And then, of course, uh, he, uh, all of this is recorded for us in order that he might be our example in how we can confidently uh, handle uh, temptation in our own lives. And so we see here in verses 1 and 2 kind of the timing and the context, the circumstances of the, uh, of the temptation. And, uh, and, and Jesus being uh, brought out following this empowering of the Holy Spirit, now he's br uh, being brought out into this temptation. 
So the baptism with the Holy Spirit is not fun and games. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are not fun and games. God doesn't give the power of the Holy Spirit so we can uh, do Jericho marches in our church services or uh, so that we can shout really loud or try to lengthen legs or whatever, uh, whatever it might be. The power of the Holy Spirit is, again, as we saw this morning, is nitty-gritty kind of of stuff that we need within, uh, within our lives to be able to withstand uh, in, in terms of what's immediately in front of us to withstand uh, any kind of, of temptation that comes our way. And uh, it's important to uh, recognize here as, as Jesus is led now into this place where he was tempted, it is the power to stand in any circumstance that the Holy Spirit might also lead us into. And so you've got this uh, temptation that followed uh, the mountaintop experience of the water uh, baptism by John there at the Jordan River and the Holy Spirit coming upon him, the witness of the Father uh, related to him, and then immediately comes this temptation, this demonic attack. And how often uh, it occurs. And it's good to stay alert to it, even after all these years of serving the Lord, not even after. Uh, I'm more alert to it than ever. But anytime there's a special something that happens in, in God using you or uh, any kind of uh, a mountaintop experience in our relationship with the Lord, to always be ready uh, not, to put, not to have a letdown, but to realize that so often it's followed immediately by some kind of a temptation or an attack uh, of the devil. Additionally, uh, we can be... Uh, most vulnerable to temptations and spiritual warfare at times when we're suffering uh, physical weakness. Here is Jesus. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. And we are, um, uh, we are a trinity ourselves. We're not the, a trinity in the way that God is a trinity, but we're made up of a physical body. We're made up of a spirit, uh, lowercase s, and, uh, and, and then the Holy Spirit in our lives. And uh, so the lowercase s is our, our intellect, our emotions, and every part of that trinity uh, it, it affects the other part of that trinity. So when we're down physically, we're ill, or we're in uh, very stretching circumstances, stressful circumstances, it will affect the whole part of our life. And it will, can make us, uh, we need to be prepared for warfare or spiritual temptation when, uh, when we find ourselves in that place. One of the things that I hate about the devil, and I hate everything about him, but he absolutely does not play fair. When he sees us, whether you're getting chemo or whether you're coming out of a, a quadruple bypass or whatever a person might be dealing with in life, and, and you'd think, oh, this guy's going to have some heart and he's not going to go after us in, in that weakened and stretched of, of a condition, he has no heart at all. And, uh, and, and he will go after us in a time in which we are physically weak for uh, whatever the reason uh, 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 might be. And so he catches Jesus uh, after 40 days in a harsh environment. He hadn't been staying at a, a Hilton. Uh, he'd been out in the open and hadn't been eating for the, for the 40 days. This is when he comes in uh, against him. I want you to notice as well in verse 2, that the Lord's temptation uh, uh, here, uh, it didn't begin, uh, the devil's temptation of him, it didn't begin at the end of the 40 days. So often we can think that, okay, he was just uh, out in the harshness of that environment and then not eating for 40 days, and then the devil comes in and unloads these three temptations on him. And that's not uh, what, the, what the, the text indicates here, is that the devil was tempting him on these three fronts the entire uh, 40 days that he was out um, in, in the wilderness. And so uh, he comes against him in this way. I think it's also important to notice that in tempting us, uh, as we see here, Satan can do no more than suggest to us to tempt us to do wrong 
uh, and temptation only becomes sin uh, when we act upon his suggestions or his uh, temptations. He cannot force any Christian to sin. Now notice the temptations themselves here in uh, uh, verse 3 and 4. The first temptation, the devil said to Jesus, if, and the idea is really since, he's not uh, doubting the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, uh, since you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him saying, uh, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And so Satan tempts Jesus now to turn a stone uh, into bread. Very powerful temptation for someone who's been fasting for uh, 40 days. The problem uh, in this temptation is, is that Jesus hadn't received any instruction or any permission from uh, God the Father to break his fast uh, or to uh, do so by turning uh, stones into bread. And so to do this would have been to operate independent of God the Father in this situation. And as a result, this temptation is essentially the temptation to get Jesus to elevate the satisfying of his bodily appetites uh, above all else in his decision-making and all else in his doing that satisfying our physical appetites is more important than obeying God. And that, that is a temptation that is being put forth to Jesus. It is a temptation that we are all familiar with as Christians. In other words, elevate the satisfying of your physical appetites above the Word of God, above the will of God for your life. And if your fleshly appetites want you to do something, then you just simply obey those fleshly uh, appetites. And if it requires any kind of physical difficulty or self-denial or any self-sacrifice to live faithfully uh, for God, then we're just free to take our life back under our own control and do precisely what we uh, want. And so the devil comes uh, to us with this same temptation, allow your spiritual life to be dominated by your carnal or physical appetites. And the devil comes along and he says, yes, 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 by all means remain a a Christian. There's nothing he can do about that anyway. So he's lost that battle. By all means remain a Christian, nothing I can do about that. But don't get fanatical. Let's not get too serious about all of this and be sure to realize that whenever push comes to shove between God's will and, uh, and His commandments and your carnal appetites that you do what your body tells you to do. And because Satan cannot affect our salvation, the next thing he tries to do is to destroy our Christian witness, the effectiveness of our Uh, of our Christian uh, service. And a surefire way to destroy uh, our Christian witness and our effectiveness in Christian ministry uh, is to get us to live our Christian life on those terms, to live on the terms of my flesh and my fleshly appetites rather than on God's uh, terms. And in this uh, temptation, Satan also attacks uh, the goodness of God. And the idea is that God doesn't really care for you, Jesus. Why would he, why would he care for, how can you come to the, any kind of an understanding of his love for you or his care for you? He's got you out in this wilderness, and, and uh, in his will he hasn't allowed you to eat for uh, 40 days. It sure looks like he's doing a lousy job looking out for you. And what he's called you uh, to do here, keeping you hungry all of this time. And uh, remember that Jesus said uh, he did only those things that please the Father, those things the Father told him to do. And thus, as he is, has been fasting those 40 days out in that wilderness, he is in the middle of the will of God here. He's experiencing suffering in the middle of God's will. 
And during these kind of times, the devil will come and suggest to us an alternative that will make it easier. But it will require abandoning the will of God for our lives. And how often this temptation to doubt the goodness of God can arise just as it did in Jesus' life right at the onset of our Christian service or the onset of some great step of faith that we're about to take in obedience to God in our our Christian uh, life. And those seasons can be very, very hard. You just get get so hammered by the devil and those early steps and early starts uh, as he tries to knock us out of Uh, out of God's will to get us to abandon it uh, because he'll never have a a more opportune time than uh, than, uh, so often than right at the beginning. So this kind of attack can be expected. Jesus' answer to his temptation, uh, he he quoted from uh, the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And so he meets the temptation by declaring that as essential as food is, life is not found supremely in physical food, uh, in having a full uh, belly, or living a life that is dominated by our bodily uh, appetites and urges, but that life is found in obeying the Word of God, to live a life that is right with God, that's being directed by God, and being lived in obedience to God's Word and to God's leading. And uh, part of what Jesus is communicating, we might put it this way, where we might say it, I would rather be uh, physically hungry while in the will of God than to have a full belly outside of it. And uh, we know what that means in, in, in our lives and, and the truth of that. And Jesus would later uh, declare to his disciples in John chapter 4, Uh, after he spoke to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And so when we really believe that, it isn't just, yeah, that sounds like a good thing to say, but we really are in a place in our Christian life where we say, I would rather go hungry than to move outside of God's will and, and, his, uh, and, and intimacy with him in this relationship, in, in, in his power. And of course, the Apostle Paul, he possessed this, communicated it to the church at Philippi. He said, for me, uh, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Uh, living for God was everything to uh, the Apostle Paul. In this regard, I always think about an illustration I read early in my Christian life about a missionary by the name of James Calvert, and he went to evangelize the cannibals of the Fiji Islands uh, a long, long time ago. And when he and his fellow missionaries had been brought, uh, landed on the island by uh, the sailing ship that had uh, brought them there, the captain of the ship uh, uh, tried to get them to turn back and come back to the ship. And he said to them, you will die. The men with you will die if you stay here. Uh, And then uh, after a moment, Calvert uh, uh, replied simply, we died before uh, we came here, and the devil has absolutely n- no effective weapon against that kind of commitment to the will of God. You notice the second temptation here in uh, verse 5. The devil took Jesus up on a high mountain, uh, showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and the devil said to him, all this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I uh, give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, then all of this will be yours. And Jesus answered that temptation, again quoting from Deuteronomy. He said, get me thee behind me, get behind me, Satan, for as it is written, 
You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And so Satan takes Jesus up at this high mountain, all the kingdoms of the world. He sees Him all at once, and uh, Satan declares that the world was His to give to Jesus. Jesus does not argue with him uh, about the truth of that, that particular claim or that particular uh, statement because the world had been forfeited to the devil, in a sense, by Adam and Eve in the Garden uh, of, of Eden. And even today, Satan is referred to as uh, the God of this age. And Jesus is going to bring an end to Satan's reign one day at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ when he will be cast into an eternal uh, lake of fire. But presently, uh, all of this belongs to him, delivered to him by the sin of, of Adam and Eve. One day it'll be uh, brought to uh, an end, but he possesses the entire world with which to tempt people and to tempt God's uh, uh, people. And I think that essentially here, Satan tempts Jesus to endeavor to accomplish God's purposes uh, by uh, his own means. And Jesus had come into the world with the intention of redeeming the world, purchase it back from Satan, so to speak, and, uh, but he had come into the world to redeem it back uh, to God by way of his death upon the cross. And Satan comes along and he offers Jesus the world that he had come to redeem, but by a different means than God the Father had determined. Uh, an easier way. No cross involved in this. No death involved in this. But it would require a compromise. It would require that Jesus worship Satan. And I think that this temptation is encapsulated in the old saying that the end justifies the means. In other words, as long as you achieve a good goal, as long as you achieve a good end, then uh, the means by which you achieve it is completely unimportant. It's okay to achieve God's ends by ungodly means. And that's the temptation. The problem with that in the Christian life and in our Christian service is that a godly goal has to also uh, be achieved by godly means. Both uh, parts of our life are intended to bring glory to God and for Him to use both of them to glorify uh, Himself and for us to properly represent God, to achieve a uh, a good or a holy end by unholy means, God doesn't get seen in, uh, in that at all, that doesn't properly represent God at, at all. And so both the end and the means uh, reflect upon our God because we are Christians, and uh, both of the ends and the means are to be done God's way uh, in order for them to, to glorify Him. And there's always a great temptation in life and in ministry to try and cut a corner, to compromise in some way in order to achieve a, a, a particular goal, even for God, and to try and find some easier way than God's way, and to begin to compromise now in the process, and to worship the devil in his ways, uh, so to speak, in, in the process of it, and uh, a temptation to avoid our hardship, to avoid our cross in, in achieving God's purposes for uh, our lives, and, uh, and, and, uh, and involved in achieving those things in, in, by God-given means, and uh, which always, when uh, both the ends and the means are united together uh, for uh, good, it produces faith in us, it produces godly character, it is the way to go. And in the culture that we live in, hey, the end justifies the means, uh, now you know where it comes from. Uh, uh, it is a demonic temptation. And, uh, and then we have within our culture the great kind of mantra of our day, uh, it works. 
And you even see this stuff in Christian magazines or Christian uh, church growth things or different things like this. Yeah, it's a little shady, but it works. It's a little shady, but it raises a lot of money. It's a little shady, but a lot of people will sign up uh, for it. And this whole idea of the, the most important thing being that it works and you can disregard everything else is a, a, a very old temptation uh, of, of the devil. And, uh, and so Jesus answers the temptation in, in verse 8, and uh, we had no doubt that he would resist this, of course. He refused the offer outright. He quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, only God is worthy. Uh, he informed the devil of our worship, even when, even when, even when Satan offers us an easier path or an easier life than the one that God calls us to, and we are to worship and serve God alone, and uh, not only concerning uh, the ends of our lives, but the means by which uh, we get there. Temptation number three in verse nine, then he brought Jesus to Jerusalem, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, uh, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Josephus tells us, uh, the great Jewish historian tells us that this is speaking of the southeastern corner of the temple. There's a lot of rubble that is built up there now from so much destruction and rebuilding that's gone on through the centuries. But at the time of Jesus, to stand on the corner of that part of the area of the temple, it was a, uh, a sheer drop of 450 feet till you hit uh, water. No, till you hit uh, absolute bedrock there. So this is how high up he is, and uh, uh, Satan brings Jesus there and tells him, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, uh, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And so Satan shows him all of these, uh, takes him up to this high point, says, jump off the, the, the pinnacle here of the temple. And uh, the temptation is that he would then be forcing God to send a couple of angels to then catch him in midair to keep him from hitting the ground and, and dying. And, uh, and Satan here was tempting Jesus to put his life in deliberate danger in an attempt to force God to operate in a certain uh, way. And Jesus called this kind of thing uh, tempting God. And so often this idea of so uh, today, people talk about taking a step of faith, as if taking a step of faith is knowing the will of God, and then the faith comes in on whether I'm going to obey Him or not, knowing the will of God. Faith is not guessing the will of God and then just jumping out there. That's not a biblical uh, faith. And so this whole idea of just jumping, doing something, doing rash, and then force God to jump in and rescue you, and what a testimony it'll be to, to God and all. It gives the appearance of being spiritual and of being a great step of faith, but in fact, it's just presumption and self-will. It's an attempt to make myself the pilot in this relationship with God and to make God uh, the, the co-pilot. And we're never to put our lives in a deliberate danger in an attempt to force God to act in a certain way. Uh, for instance, taking on debt that God has told, uh, never told us to take on in our lives or put ourselves in crazy financial uh, situations that God never told us to uh, get involved in or putting our lives in physical danger uh, that God has never told us to, uh, to do and then expecting God uh, when everything goes south to come in and uh, miraculously fix uh, everything because we think we're giving him a great opportunity to uh, show and demonstrate his power. 
And that's not what faith is. It's called tempting God. It's not faith. And, and we also tempt God when we deliberately, as King David did, when we move out of God's will for our lives and uh, we deliberately place ourselves in a temptation uh, that we would have never come into contact with if we had remained in God's will for our lives. And uh, famously there in Second Samuel chapter 11, David, in the time when kings went out to war, he was a king. He should have been leading his armies. He's back in Jerusalem, and after a nap, he looks out over a wall. He sees a beautiful woman bathing, calls for her Bathsheba, and then this whole terrible, terrible chapter in everybody's life, just not David's uh, life alone. And the importance of realizing that there are enough temptations in life within the will of God, uh, but to deliberately choose and say, I'm going to disobey God, I'm going to put myself in an extraordinary uh, temptation, and I'm going to make it incumbent upon God uh, to make sure nothing bad happens here, uh, that is an aspect of tempting God and we don't want to do it. In other words, if you are an alcoholic, you have a problem, a struggle with alcohol, you don't go into a bar to order a 7-Up. You get that someplace else. And that kind of thing is tempting God. David tempted God. We have to be careful of it when uh, in our own lives. I think that so often what happens afterwards is that there's this gigantic crash and burn, uh, and then we blame God for failing uh, to keep us from falling into sin, uh, but being in those circumstances to begin with, uh, God had nothing to do with it. It was not His fault at all. Uh, I am, have merely fallen prey to one of the oldest uh, temptations and devices uh, of, of the devil as we see here. Uh, do, do notice that Satan, in this temptation, as we saw this morning, he quotes two verses, and he quotes two verses from Psalm 91, but uh, as he always does with the Scriptures, and uh, you can't put your guard down when you hear someone quote a verse, because the devil will quote a verse. It's not like he melts into a puddle like the Wicked Witch of the North or something, uh, or it's not kryptonite to him or something like that. Uh, he's not afraid to use it, but he will always misapply it, and he will always take it out of context. And that's exactly what uh, he did here. The two promises that he uh, uh, uses here and makes to Jesus, those are made to those who dwell in the shadow uh, of the Almighty, those who rest in God and trust in God, and uh, not to provide us with a kind of self-willed right to uh, tempt God and force God's hand in our life. And uh, so these are promises for trials that come into our lives uh, through the will of God in the normal course uh, of our lives. And it's important to understand uh, that and to understand how the devil uses these kind of temptations. Jesus' response in verse 7, here he quotes again from the book of Deuteronomy. He quotes from chapter 6, verse 16, and, uh, and he shows that he didn't consider uh, anything that the devil was tempting him to do here as being any kind of an expression of faith, uh, but that it, it was actually uh, tempting God. And we're never to tempt God in this way, never to put ourselves in deliberate danger and then uh, try to force God to prove himself uh, to us. That's not faith, but that's just presumption. Jesus responds to each of these temptations as our example with the Word of God. He meets the temptation, number one, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then his second great a characteristic of his life in the temptation is he had a working knowledge of the Scriptures. He, he met the temptations, each one of them, with the Word of God. It's important, especially if you and I have two or three uh, particular temptations in our life, and I think we all have one, two, or three 
uh, particular temptations that are, uh, make us most vulnerable, to find verses in the Bible that speak to that temptation, and to memorize them, and to be able to speak them uh, into any temptation that the devil brings against us in, in the midst of this. And so Jesus met the temptations with, it is written uh, three times, and then being filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we find ourselves in the middle of deep temptation, there's nothing wrong with asking to be freshly refilled with that overflowing of the Holy Spirit, and, and God will provide uh, that uh, to us. And so here is this wonderful, wonderful uh, example to us of temptation. We're told, I wish I could tell you that uh, once you uh, 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 navigate a temptation uh, like this, even Jesus as well as Jesus did, that you pass the test and the, nev- the devil never bothers you for the rest of your life. But that's not, it's kind of interesting when I was diagnosed with cancer about 10 years ago, and, uh, you know, there's a funny thing where you just think, okay, well, uh, all right, I got cancer now. And, uh, and it's almost like the idea, at least for me, I'm, I'm this dense, it's like, okay, well, I just got to deal with this, but I can't get another kind of cancer. And, uh, and, and the same thing here, okay, I've dealt with this temptation now successfully, and the devil will now be forced to leave me alone. No, he doesn't. There's a lot more that's going to happen uh, after that, and we're told that when the devil had ended every temptation, that he departed from him, uh, Jesus, until an appropriate uh, time. And so we'll stop there tonight. And uh, Satan loses his battle with Jesus uh, here. And as we respond to the temptations in the same way uh, Jesus did, he will be no more successful uh, with us. So I'd like the worship team to come forward. And um, 